Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. We go to Bill's office to meet with him for the first time and we walk into his conference room. It's huge table and he's sitting on the end in his grand chair. I start to walk up to him and he stands up and he says, Emily, I have been waiting for this moment for six years. Oh my gosh. You are finally here. He proceeds to tell us that your father has lost all authority over you and that I'm your new authority. Leave your family Come live at headquarters and headquarters will be your new family. It was like walking into the spider's web. Hey guys, my name is Shalise Ansola and this is Colts to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high demand religions and organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. If you're only listening and you want to see our faces, go to my YouTube channel at Colts to Consciousness, where you can like and subscribe. Guys, yesterday we hit 50,000 supporters. And yes, I'm calling you supporters instead of subscribers because it really means a lot that you're willing to step up and help me advocate for these people, these survivors, the ones who are coming coming on and being brave enough to tell their stories to all of you. It really means the world. So thank you so much for elevating my platform and telling the algorithm that you like it. So it sends it out to even more people and the comments as well. I have just been so touched and I know my guests have as well seeing all of your words of encouragement and advice and support for them. So thank you so much for that. Today's guest... I saw her on the documentary, Shiny Happy People, where they talk about the IBLP group, which is, I would say, an extreme Christian fundamentalist set of beliefs that really have some negative impacts on these children and families who are implementing these teachings. I saw her story and she immediately stuck out to me and I got to my notes and I started writing down part of her story, but I wanted more of it. I wanted to hear more of her story. She was so inspiring. And so I cyber stalked her and reached out to her and I'm so happy that she's here with me today. So thank you so much for joining us, Emily Elizabeth. Thank you. I'm excited to be on this and deep dive into this conversation. Um, Thank you for having me. Of course. Now, your story within the Shiny Happy People, you had mentioned to me off camera that you had like a 10-hour interview and they only put a few minutes in. So I want to get into that even further. And I think before we dive in, I want to give a brief explanation as to what the IBLP is for those who aren't aware. And also, you can watch our other videos that we have done um, with Growing up in polygamy, we did one comparing the FLDS to the IBLP and also with Jen. That was our first video on the IBLP. So please correct me if I'm wrong, Emily. I'm going to do my best as far as giving an explanation. But as far as I'm aware, it is a group of principles that was created by Bill Gothard in the 60s. And it's basically an umbrella system. So the it's very patriarchal. So you have God at the top and then under God is the father and under the father are the children and the women. So they aren't really allowed to have their own type of authority. 
And also the goal is to have as many children as God will bless you with and to shoot out these children into society to permeate these ideals and these beliefs into the government and in every sect of society. So it's very fundamentalist, as I mentioned, and it comes with a lot of things that creates an abusive environment for the people who are following them. They blame things on the victims. There's a lot of victim blaming and shaming. One of my favorite quotes was, it turns every father into a cult leader. Every father into a cult leader and every home into an island. Yes. Thank you. Beautifully said. So it just isolates these families within this overarching group. And I want to specify that it's not a religion in itself. It is among many different Christian denominations, and they kind of just bring in the fundamentalist principles of the past. So I I feel like I didn't do justice. Maybe if there's something that you want to add that I'm forgetting or leaving out. Yeah, well, I'll probably use a couple of acronyms throughout this episode, and I want to clarify what those are. Um, So IBLP, the Institute in Basic Life Principles, that is the original organization and was created by Bill Gothard. Under that, Gothard created several additional programs, and they all have their own acronym. He had his own paramilitary organization called ALERT, um, and he had a basically a finishing school for girls where they learned how to sew and cook and be domesticated housewives, mm. uh, and it was called Excel. And then he had a homeschool program called ATI or the Advanced Training Institute. And that is the program that my family became involved in. Um, and so I'll interchange IBLP or ATI uh, as I'm talking about my childhood experience. Um, but they're, they're basically the same program. Okay. Yes. Thank you for that. So let's get into your family. When did your family start implementing these rules or going to these seminars with Bill Gothard and bringing home these principles of IBLP? So I was pretty much born and raised into fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. My parents were both um, teachers at a fundamentalist Christian school. It was a combination of a Christian school and a church. And it was it was pretty legalistic, pretty strict. A lot of the same rules that you find in these fundamentalist circles where you um, you basically just had to separate yourself from the world as much as possible. So no worldly music or media consumption and very strict dress standards and just a, a code of ethics um, that I think extends beyond scripture (laughs) and uh, just kind of controlling every single part of your life of, of what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to act. And uh, so I was actually raised in that school, um, went to that church from birth, uh, went to the school from first through fourth grade. But then when I was going to enter fifth grade, my mom decided she wanted to homeschool me. Mm. Uh, And my parents had been aware of IBLP since they were teenagers because Gothard had done these very large seminars. He would travel throughout the States, even out of country and host these large seminars. He would pack stadiums full of individuals to this day. It's estimated that close to 3 million people have attended his seminars. Oh, wow. And there would also be... Re- recorded seminars. And then, so he didn't 
teach in person at every single one, but you would still have these large seminars and on the big screen was like a recording of an original one. Uh, so my parents had grown up with, or had been, had been exposed to the teachings as, as young adults. Um, mm. But it wasn't until we started homeschooling when I was in fifth grade that we officially joined the organization and we joined ATI. And ATI is a bit next level. Um, for those that are slightly aware of Gothard, I hear a lot of comments where someone says, oh, I, I went to one of those seminars back in the 70s and if it wasn't that bad, I mean, kind of just sounded like stuff out of the Bible. And I, I can agree to some level, I think the seminars were still pretty dangerous um, when you really dig into the teachings and what he's really trying to say and how he gets those teachings out there. He loves to cherry pick scripture oh. and um, use the Bible to back his own points that he's pretty much pulling out of thin air at times. The seminars were just the original entrance into the teachings and they were much more mild um, because they didn't want to scare off people too much. Right. I was just going to say that's probably on purpose so that you can very much lure them purpose. in and get them where you want yes. them and then make it worse and worse. And when you would go to a seminar, you would get a large red notebook that you would scribble all your notes in for the week. You were told that you should not pass on your notebook or show anyone the materials without them actually attending a seminar. Interesting. Uh, which was very intentional <laughs> because yeah. they didn't want individuals, uh, they wanted someone's experience into the organization to be the full view to where they're hearing the teaching, they're getting the exposure uh, in in this high pressured live experience of a seminar and you've got this huge room full of people and you're looking at the written material. They wanted that impact. They didn't want you to just read written material because yes. they spot through the red flags a lot easier. I want to pause real quick because I think this is a really important distinction when it comes to indoctrination. And I've heard this over many different groups, right? I remember my boyfriend when I was 19, and this is back when I was still Mormon. He went to this really intense group, and I wish I remember the name of it, but it's one of those seminars. It costs way too much money. It's a three-day weekend thing, and they come back a changed person, but almost in like a creepy way where you're just like, who are you? What have you done with my boyfriend? Something feels weird. And I remember asking him, why did it change your life? What's going on in those seminars? And he would get really uncomfortable and be like, I can't tell you. You just have to go and experience it because they were telling him, don't share what you've learned, just recruit more people. And so he would just get super weird about it. And I was like, just tell me what goes on in them to the fact where I went to my computer and <laughs> Googled it. And it sounded so culty, even by my own standards being in a cult myself. I was like, this is wrong. They're having you do all this crazy stuff. And he's like, you just don't understand because you weren't there. And I'm thinking, but look at all this. They're asking you to imagine your own funeral and your own death. And this is not healthy. And it, it's just something that they use to indoctrinate you because you have the music and you have the charismatic leader on stage and you have the intonation that mesmerizes you. And all of these people are having emotional responses of 
course, just like you would in therapy, you're going to have an emotional response, but then they mistake it for this doctrine is true, not I'm just having an emotional experience. And so 100%, that is such a big thing. And so I'm so glad that you brought that up. So once you get into once you've been to the seminars, you're allowed to join ATI, which ATI was started in uh, 1984. Um, And this was their homeschool program. And you had a yearly fee, you had this extensive application that you had to sign and and go through and and agree. Um, I believe the original application required that men were not allowed to have beards, uh, required that you ate a certain diet and that huh. you um, wouldn't have a television in your home. So like already just to be able to join the program, there were a certain list of requirements of, of lifestyle practices that you had to adhere to. Then once you um, paid the yearly fee, you would get a set of books called the wisdom booklets. And this was your homeschool curriculum. I really have empathy for the individuals that only ever used the wisdom booklets because they were not, they couldn't even scratch the surface of a decent education. Mm. Uh, They were not cited whatsoever. It was just really random material that I don't even know. It was written by multiple individuals, but it was just so much just blatant wrong fact. <laughs> um, you would have like the history section where we were taught that the French Revolution was a result of white bread. And like oh, we were taught gosh. there was a lot of racism. And uh, we were taught that in Africa, that drums were used to call up spirits. And so that's why rock music is evil. Because these like demons are coming through the drums devil worshiping african tribes were using drums to call up spirits i mean it's just absolutely repulsive to think about now and i hate even repeating it because it's just so awful but um there was a history resource and a science resource and a medical resource where they would just come up with the most random stuff uh that was supposed to be like, I don't know, you were learning about the human body, but they were all tying it to scripture. And so huh. the wisdom booklets were based off of Matthew, the, the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I remember wisdom booklet 1 is only part of a verse. It's the first half of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, and seeing the multitudes. That's it. So we had one wisdom book that was supposed to last the course of a month. So for an entire month, grades kindergarten through 12, they are studying the exact same material Oh, and is based off of and seeing the multitudes. And um, for that wisdom booklet, the resource was the eye. And we were supposed to be learning about the human eye and how it worked. And of course, it was like all mixed in with just very odd um, verses that were completely taken out of context and yeah, none of it was actually factual or scientific. So that was the homeschooling program for, for these poor families. Um, I was one of the fortunate families where wisdom booklets were considered the Bible study. And then I had Mm. a whole nother like six hours of schooling on top of it, but some families only use the wisdom booklets and 
we were taught that when you finished the wisdom booklets, it was supposed to be the equivalent of a pre-law and a pre-med degree. I can't. I can't with that. <laughs> That's ridiculous. And everything yeah. that you're mentioning, too, it's from what I saw in the documentary, it's supposed to be education through the eyes of God, right? So everything mm -hmm. is interlaced with religion and there's definitely no secular education to be found. It, that's what it yeah. felt like is you're not really getting an education. You're just learning weird facts that somehow tie back into God. Yes. Of course, it was very legalistic, very focused on outward actions. Um, like you saw in the documentary, there was um, an entire section on what they called eye traps. And so we were taught that men had an uncontrollable lust for women. And that is how God created them. Mm -hmm. They can't control themselves. They can't control their eyes. They can't control their thoughts. And so the solution, which is funny because the, that there is a verse in scripture where Jesus is speaking to that. And he says, if you cannot control your eyes, you pluck your eyes out. Oh, so geez. he actually, yes, Jesus puts the responsibility on the person who is lusting. Instead, IVLP put the responsibility on the women. And they said the solution to eye traps or the solution to a wandering eye for a man is to avoid eye traps for women to avoid eye traps with their clothing. So we had a whole wisdom booklet section on spotting the eye traps and there would be drawings of women in various clothing and you would have to circle what the eye traps are. So like for me right now, I'm wearing a V-neck shirt. That would be an eye trap. Mm. So we'd circle the V-neck because it's like drawing the eyes down to your chest. And if you had a slit on your skirt, that was drawing your eyes upward. Oh my gosh. Um, and so that that was considered an eye trap or long jewelry. Or I mean, there was just, it was, it was all over the place. So that was the homeschool education. Um, in addition to that, you would attend uh, yearly conferences where all the families would get together and you would listen to a year or, or a week of um, messages. So the conferences were actually my, the highlight of my year because one of the primary focuses of IBLP was to instill their teachings through fear. Mm. And so you were trained to have this fear of the outside world and a fear of anyone who did not follow IBLP teachings. So conferences were the highlight of my year because it was the first time of the year I really could relax and I felt safe because I was in a group of individuals that all looked and acted and talked like I did. Right. Uh, which is exactly what I called it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. I was afraid of the outside world, and I always felt so out of place just even doing, you know, going out and running errands, doing grocery shopping. And I looked so different because I had hair down to um, – down to the back of my knees mm. and I had, you know, long skirts and um, I, I looked different and would catch staring eyes all the time. And that was, that was the focus was we, that was supposed to be our witness was that we looked so different from the rest of the world that there was supposed to be an attractiveness in Hold that up. and that would bring people to Hold us. Hold on. Are you saying that you were an eye trap for the outside world on purpose? <laughs> 
<laughs> because I'm just like, wait a second. But, but <laughs> the whole purpose of eye trap, which is what is what's so odd. The entire purpose of an eye trap is they said you wanted to draw attention to your countenance, okay. your face. Okay. So that way people aren't looking at your body. But when you're wearing clothes that stand out so much because you look so different from the rest of the world, people are going to be looking at your clothes and they're going to be looking at your body. They're not going to be looking at your face. Exactly. That's so interesting. And I would love for you to paint us a picture as to what your clothes actually looked like and why they were so different. I mean, we understand the modesty, but I really want to get an idea and maybe we can get some photos from you if you have any to put on the screen as to what you actually looked like. Mm -hmm. Well, you could only wear skirts and I wore a lot of denim skirts. I know some families couldn't even wear denim because denim was considered a worldly fabric. Oh, I would wear ankle length skirts. If I had, if, if I were to purchase a skirt, a lot of our skirts were homemade, but regardless, when, when you purchased a skirt, you had to do the test where you would sit down and you had to make sure that the skirt still covered your knees even when you sat down. And then there would be tests of like bending over and getting in all these weird positions to make sure that you're still remaining modest even when you're not just standing in a perfect straight line. So um, yeah, lots of long skirts and um, you were not supposed to wear shoes with heels, even the teeny tiny little half inch kitten heels. Those were usually not allowed. A lot of families couldn't wear open toed shoes. Um, a lot of women wore hosiery for just their every day as additional covering of their legs. So bare legs wouldn't be shown. Um, you had shirts where they had, you couldn't have sleeveless or even like definitely not spaghetti scrap or anything like that. You had to have sleeves that covered your shoulders. Your shirt had to be like at your collarbone or above. There would usually be, they called it the two finger test. So you put your um, fingers uh, right at your collarbone and your shirt, when you dip down, couldn't go below oh. two fingers underneath your collarbone. And if that happened, then you would have to wear like an undershirt. But even that could be considered an eye trap. And <laughs> it was just, that there was so hard. many ways to that. There was certain patterns, like the stripes that I'm wearing right now could be considered an eye trap or um, just any, what they considered anything that would draw attention to the clothing. But as we discussed, just looking so different from the world in mm-hmm. and of itself drew attention to your clothing. Why are they dressed that way? Yeah. Okay. Well, the one thing that sticks out to me is the amount of blame and shame that comes from being a woman because you're not only carrying the weight of other people's opinions of you, but also if something happens to you, it's your fault. And that is where it is extremely problematic. I get a lot of people in the comments saying, what's wrong with modesty? And I'm like, listen, you can dress however you want. As long as someone is not forcing you to dress that way, as long as they are not shaming you, if you don't dress that way, like there's a lot of things that sure can be good about covering your body, but not when it's painted in this light of if you don't dress this way, anything that happens to you is your fault or just the shame that it creates around your body in general. I mean, that was most of my childhood was being shamed for wearing certain things that were totally fine. Like I was Mm -hmm. dressing totally fine, especially for a child. So when you're telling a child 
that you need to cover up because men are looking at you, it also promotes that idea of pedophilia, which is not okay because men shouldn't be looking at children that way to begin with. So making it feel like it's their fault, they're not going to have the language to come forward and, and talk about something that's happened to them when they have this immense shame around it. Yeah. There was for an organization whose entire goal was to to keep sex only within marriage they and and to avoid the topic of sex until you are married mm-hmm. for an organization who did that they oversexualized everything and you may remember there was a portion in the documentary that explained that um boys should not change like a you know mm-hmm. maybe a I don't know, a teenage boy shouldn't change his little sister's diaper because then that would be causing him to lust after his baby sister. Right. Um, little girls uh, also, like little babies, like a year-year-old, a year-old baby had to also be in a dress and then tights to make sure her little legs were covered um, because babies could be considered, um, you know, an eye trap for men. Wow. Um, a large part of my story is that I was sexually abused by my father. I was uh, molested at the age of 12. Um, he really started to, things really started to crumble when I was 11. And that sexual abuse continued until I was in my early 20s. Mm. Um, not the the worst was molestation and and it wasn't repeated molestation until I was in my 20s but there was other forms of sexual abuse and um comments and trying to you know get under my skirts and um mm. instances where he would there was one time I was in the bathroom and um I was dressed but I he was trying to get into the bathroom and I remember throwing my entire body weight against the door, begging him not to come into the bathroom because I was in there and he threw his entire body weight onto the door and I actually fell back into the wall as he burst through to get into the bathroom. And times when I wasn't dressed, he would try to get into my room. And I mean, just, it was, um, it was a lot all throughout my teenage years. And I was repeatedly held responsible for that. Um, So if I complained that I felt that I had been sexualized by my dad, then I was told, well, you weren't, you know, if, if you don't want your dad making comments like that, then you shouldn't wear pajamas around him. Oh my gosh. Always told that I wasn't covering up enough or um, if I, the time after I was molested, I remember telling a family member and they, all they said was, yeah, I know he's gross. He's creepy. Just stay away from him rather than reporting it because abuse isn't, <laughs> abuse really isn't a thing in IBLP. The word abuse doesn't come up. <clears throat> the only kind of sexual abuse that I thought was sexual abuse was rape. Mm. That um, included two sets of genitals. Right. I didn't know there was any other form of sexual abuse. I didn't know molestation was considered abuse. Right. Um, I didn't know rape with objects could be considered abuse um, or, or rape. Um, 
Yeah. So victims are first not told that what happened to them was indeed a crime. Um, the overall broad term is inappropriate because it's not considered a crime. It's considered a moral failure. Oh, so my father's sexual abuse and sexual assault of me was never labeled as abuse and assault. It was never labeled as this was breaking the law. He should go to prison for this. Instead, it was your father is acting inappropriate toward you. And the mm. answer to that is try to avoid him, try to cover up more, figure out what you are doing to tempt your father that is oh. making him act inappropriate because God designed him to have these uh, overwhelming desires toward women. That is what we were taught. That was what was ingrained into us again and again. And to push it even farther and make it even more crazy is IBLP would have this, uh, they have this booklet that teaches how to counsel sexual. This is like one of the few instances I think where abuse comes up, or maybe it's, it's counseling those that have been molested, essentially counseling those that have been sexually abused or assaulted. And first of all, <laughs> we're taught to examine yourself and figure out what you could have done that caused the assault. Oh. Um, mm. We're taught that if you did not cry out, then you were equally responsible. <gasps> what? Um, and uh, victims were, I was personally um, told by Bill Gothard to write a letter to my father um, thanking him for the molestation because it made me stronger. Oh my gosh, Emily. There's this graphic where the spirit is this um, circle and then within it is a smaller circle that's the mind and within it is a smaller circle that is the body. And we're told that the spirit is the most important part and that your body is the least important part of what makes you as a person. And when you are sexually assaulted, we were we are taught that first of all, what happened only happened to your body. It happened to the least important part of you. We are taught that the solution to that is to dedicate your body to God. So your body no longer belongs to you. So when you say that you were assaulted, you say, well, my body wasn't assaulted. They assaulted God's body. And so I take no offense because I don't own my body. It's not something that belongs to me anymore. Oh, wow. Um, then you are also told that when your physical body is assaulted, that makes you, quote, mighty in spirit. And mighty in spirit was this term that meant you were somehow spiritually blessed and that God had um, favor upon you and um, that you were able to do things for God that somebody who wasn't assaulted was able to do. So if you remember, there was actually one individual in the documentary that said sometimes she would be jealous of her friends that were raped because being raped was considered almost this spiritual honor. And oh these gosh. person had um, more, they were, they were mightier in spirit because they had been raped. So that was the entire teaching. I am just beside yeah. myself. And oh, I think First, I just want to say thank you for sharing that with us. I know how difficult that can be as someone who's also experienced 
sexual assault from her father and ironic that we're filming this on Father's Day. This is <laughs> oh, it's like a way to take back our stories, right? But I just mm-hmm. want to witness to you that what you went through is wrong and it was not okay and it was not your fault. And I know that you know this intellectually and I know you've been doing a lot of work around this, but I think it never hurts to just say it again and thank you again for sharing that. It's just so heartbreaking that this is happening all over the world because of this man's teachings. It's so wrong. It's so backwards. We could dissect every little thing that's wrong with those teachings and we would be here for five hours. It's just, it's not okay. And so I just wanted to state that for the record and just thank you again, because I think by you sharing, it's going to help so many people who may not have had the language around their abuse either. And it may shed some light on their own childhood and their own past. And I'm just wondering what's going through your mind when you're going through this course, how how are you feeling about it? Are you are you taking it in as far as what they're telling you about it's your fault? How are you responding to this? I felt very tortured as a teenager because in my home, it was very clear that my father was acting inappropriate, uh-huh. as they would say, and that My father was, I was told that my father was in rebellion against God and that he wasn't following God. And it was just, it was very, well, it was commonly spoken and acknowledged that our home was deeply broken. And what I think makes my story a bit unique compared to many others that were raised in IBLP is that IBLP is a patriarchal system and I was raised in it without a patriarch because my father didn't take part in the wisdom booklets and he did not attend the conferences. It really was just me and my mother attending these conferences and going through the material. And as we're reading about the importance of male headship and how the fathers have all this responsibility. And we're learning about this umbrella teaching that if someone has holes in their umbrella, then that means the fiery darts of Satan are going to get through and attack your family. So growing up, I was under the impression that my family is under satanic attack. And yet the responsibility was always placed on the women in the family, on me and my mother. And we were praying and trying to do everything that we were taught that we need to do because we were told that if you do have um, a man who is not following God, then if the women are just good enough and godly enough, then they will influence the man. Mm to start following God. So that was the whole purpose of growing up in this was that it was obvious that something was deeply wrong with my father and there was um, a lot of brokenness in my family, but it was up to me and my mom to try to save the family. And that was, that was everything I grew up with as a teenager. That was my focus. In addition to all of that, I developed Crohn's disease 
when I was 11 years old and I was officially diagnosed when I was 13. And the physician who diagnosed me said I had the worst case of Crohn's he had ever seen. And every physician I had as a teenager agreed. I was their most difficult case that they had ever worked with. I was 73 pounds as a teenager. It was half the weight that I am now. Um, I looked like a Holocaust victim. You could see every single rib in my body and my eyes were sunken in. And I spent a large majority of my teenage years in the hospital fighting for my life. And we also knew that the Crohn's disease was caused by the immense stress that I was living under. Um, There are some genetic factors to Crohn's, but really something has to turn those genes on and set Mm -hmm. the disease in motion. And often that is a life-altering stressful event, not in every case, but quite often. And the, um, the correlation between severe stress and trauma and abuse and autoimmune diseases is just astronomical. It is there. We can't deny it. So I know that when I was started to be abused at the age of 11, I started to develop Crohn's symptoms three months later. I mm. immediately dropped a large amount of weight and I remained very, very sick throughout my teenage years. So I'm fighting for my life, literally, while my family's crumbling and falling apart. And still the responsibility is on me and my mother too, to try to somehow save our family and convince my dad to get right with God again. And there was also another teaching in IBLP called the seven deadly stressors where Bill took systems of the body and tied them with sins. And so bitterness was tied to the digestive tract. Greed was tied to the skeletal system, um, et cetera. So for me, since I had Crohn's disease, that meant that I was bitter. And so again, Crohn's disease was my fault because even though I was being abused by my father, I was at fault for having Crohn's because that meant I was bitter at my dad. And I was told more times than I can possibly count that if I would just forgive my father, then I would be instantly healed and cured of Crohn's disease. And they would ask and they would say, don't you want to be cured? Don't you want that? All you have to do is forgive your father. I can't tell you how many times I prayed prayers of forgiveness. No one once ever considered maybe we should do something about the abuser. Like maybe he should be held accountable to the law. Of course, you can't go to the law in this organization because they're secular, because everything, even criminal actions are supposed to be held or dealt with within the church. You can't go to the police. You can't trust a judge. You can't trust social services. You can't go to a therapist because they're all secular organizations um, that will corrupt your family. It is an incredibly messed up system and it is a cycle of abuse that just continues to perpetuate because those that have power and that are in authority have no accountability and the victims are always, always blamed. Oh my gosh, Emily, I am so sorry. I'm just like two sentences away from bawling on my podcast here, but it's just, wow, it's so heavy and Getting into the details, which thank you for doing that, is so important because I think from a surface level, especially if there were people out there who followed the Duggars, for example, who are kind of the poster children for the IBLP, it may just be like, 
I don't see the issue. They just want to live in a very conservative way and there's nothing wrong with that. But when you get into the teachings and you really dissect what they are telling these children and like you say, perpetuating these cycles of abuse, it's so damaging and it's not okay. And it breaks my heart that there are so many people out there who are probably suffering or did suffer in their childhood because of this. So in the documentary, you mentioned that you actually went to work for Bill Gothard or you went to his training center. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So at the very first conference that my mother and I attended, I was 13. I had just been diagnosed. Bill was 71 and he spotted me at that conference. And he approached me and first he asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? And we were alone in a hallway. We were both passing each other in the hallway and he just locked eyes with me and pulled me aside. And he didn't even ask my name. He just said, what do you want to do when you get older? And I loved horses at the time. And I said, I want to train horses. And he nodded and said, hmm, okay, and then walked off. And then later that night, uh, we were informed by staff that we had been um, requested by Bill to sit at his table for dinner. During the conferences, everyone would be in one room and they would all share a, a meal together that was provided by staff. So we were asked to go to essentially the head table where Bill was. And there was about a dozen individuals there and they're all handpicked by him each night. And it was a very uncomfortable situation because in front of this dozen of other individuals, Bill was very clearly trying to flatter me. And he would say to everyone else, like, can you believe how beautiful she is? And her, she has the most amazing smile and she has this bright spirit and bright eyes and telling me that God has chosen me to do amazing things for the ministry. And then he tells everyone that Emily says she wants to train horses for a living, but I think we need to teach her how to train men. Meaning he's pulling that verse about being a a disciple and a fisher of men. Um, So he wanted me to like essentially go into ministry full time and and that, you know, training horses was worthless and that I need to do ministry instead. And then at that point he asked, how old was I? And I said I was 13. And he said, well, when you're 14, uh, because that was the age limit for this one particular program. It was called the Great Expeditions Team. And they were a missionary team, essentially, that went around the world uh, with Bill. And he said, uh, when you turn 14, we I want you to quit school permanently and come up and live at headquarters with me uh, and do ministry with IBLP all over the world. And um, being handpicked by Gothard and asked to go up to headquarters is the highest honor mm. in ATI. And most, most parents just fall over backwards with the flattery and they very gladly send their children up there without any kind of parental involvement or oversight. Um, thankfully, my mom was a little bit more of a mama bear and she didn't think that that was a great idea. She wanted me to be able to finish my schooling. She also told him, she said, you know, Crohn's disease and third world, third world countries don't mix very well. Yeah. If she's so medically fragile, we need to make sure that, you know, she's got safe 
water to drink and have to be careful about what kind of food she eats. And I was on a super restrictive diet. And um, so we really didn't think that I was in the, I was healthy enough to be able to do missionary work and, and, and travel like that. Um, so we told him we would consider it in the future, but just not right now. We would attend conferences every year. And for six years, Bill repeated that. Um, or he would, he would groom me throughout the conferences out of a crowd of a thousand individuals. He would somehow spot me and he would lock eyes with me. And then he would come up and he would instantly compliment my eyes and my smile and would tell me that, you know, God had chosen me to do great work with IBLP and with him. And he would ask me to come up and live at headquarters full time. And, um, over the years, I began to explain the abuse that I was living under and I was experiencing. And that's when Bill, you really saw how he didn't even believe his own teachings because he would throw them out the window at a chance to get one of the girls that he wanted. So when I was 18, we had another moment where it was like 11 o'clock at night and the conference had ended for the day. And it was just me and my mom and Bill sitting in this empty conference this empty space with all these where the conference was. And, um, he kept insisting I needed to come to headquarters because I was sick because of, you know, I had Crohn's disease because I was living in a stressful home and I needed to get away from that stress. And the answer was headquarters. My mom was leery about it, but she finally agreed. She said, okay, we won't come full time. Um, we won't make an indefinite, um, agreement but we will come up for just one to two weeks for counseling. Again, the focus being put on me because I was told we need to teach Emily how to deal with the stress Mm. (laughs) rather than maybe deal with the person that's causing the stress. We need to teach Emily how to be able to deal with it. So the stress doesn't affect her body physically. And my mother says, but we, we need to call, you know, Emily's dad and make sure that he's okay with that. Um, And so at 11 o'clock at night, Bill, whips out a cell phone and calls my dad and he tells him, so Emily really wants to learn how to respect her father. And then when he said that he looked at me and he winked Mm. and I knew he was intentionally buttering up my dad because he was telling me your dad's the enemy. Your dad's not a good person. But then when he talked to my dad, he said, you know, Emily's really struggling and wants to be able to respect you. And I know she's not a respectful daughter and I'm going to teach her how to be a respectful, good daughter. Mm. So my dad, of course, agrees. And um, we're in Indianapolis and Chicago or headquarters is in Chicago. And um, we finally agree like, okay, uh, he gave his permission. My mom and I are going to go up for one to two weeks. And Bill says, great, the staff is loading up, get in the car, and we'll go to Chicago, meaning just me. And he's like, you know, Emily's mom, you can go home. And Emily, you can just get in the van with the rest of the staff and we'll go to Chicago. And we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't even have my luggage. He's like, oh, you don't need it. We'll buy you all new things. Oh. (laughs) 
And we put our foot down and we're like, no, we will drive up to Chicago on our own within a few days. And, you know, Emily's mom is staying. He did not like that. He wanted my mom to go home immediately. He wanted to get me alone. Yeah. A few days later, we go up to Chicago and um, we go to Bill's office to meet with him for the first time. And we walk into his conference room. It's huge table and he's sitting on the end in his grand chair and I start to walk up to him and he stands up and he says, Emily, I have been waiting for this moment for six years. Oh my gosh. You are finally here. I think I'm going to throw up. (laughs) It was like walking into the spider's web. It was very creepy. And he sits me and my mom down and he proceeds to tell us that your father has lost all authority over you and that I'm your new authority and that you should um, leave your family, come live at headquarters and headquarters will be your new family. So this is where he doesn't even believe his own teaching because he threw away the entire um, umbrella of authority teaching, which is the cornerstone teaching of IBLP. Yeah. They teach that fathers are put in authority by God. And even if your father is not a Christian, even if he is being abusive, he's still your God given authority and you have to follow under that. Mm-hmm. Here, Bill's like, no, like, forget it. He's lost your authority. That's not a thing in IBLP, but he says it was. He lost your authority. I'm your new authority. That is how desperate he was to get to me and to have me at his, as his own. And this continued for 10 days where he continued to explain to my mother that she needed to go home, that I needed to be left up at headquarters indefinitely. Um, basically never see my family again. (laughs) And this was the only solution. This is the only way that I was ever going to get well. And if I went to headquarters, then Um, I would just go off my medication and I wouldn't follow my uh, medically required diet and I would be cured. Um, And it's like he was dangling this carrot (laughs) of this is this is the answer to what you want. You want to be cured of Crohn's disease and this is the only way to get to it. And we resisted and resisted for 10 days and ultimately feeling like the responsibility was on me to um, somehow fix my dad. I felt like I was being, I was being asked by Bill to sell myself, to to save my family, Mm -hmm. that the price to be paid was me in order to somehow save my dad. And I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And one night, um, we called Bill. We were staying on some staff housing for that week. We called him and we said, we just can't do this. We can't agree to it. Um, my mom said, I'm, I'm taking Emily home. And Bill asked if we would come up to his office, and we did. And he pulls my mother aside and he tells her you've got an amazing daughter and if you take her home it will ruin her 
and she will become rebellious and she will turn her back from God and your entire family will be destroyed. And he said, and then you're going to come back to me and it will be too late. Oh my gosh. And he pointed at her and shook his finger at her and he said, don't come crawling back to me after it's too late. So he was doing everything he could to terrorize her and threaten her. Yeah. It was his last ditch effort of you had better leave your daughter up here yeah, or else utter destruction will happen and your daughter will be ruined. My mom didn't, didn't play the game and we decided to go home anyway. Um, something else that makes that moment so powerful and impactful was that there was this teaching in IBLP uh, called the power of spoken blessing. And we were told that our words had power in other individuals' lives. And one thing that I was counseled on regarding my father was if my father was being abusive toward me, I was supposed to speak verbal blessing over him to attempt to change his behavior. So if he was being unloving, I would say, God, please bless my father with a loving heart toward me. Um, it worked the opposite way too. And we were given this story of this father who told his son one day, you'll never amount to anything. You're worthless. And of course, we were told in this story that the young boy grew up into a man and um, I don't know, never amounted to anything essentially and got into drugs and eventually died a young death. And I can't remember exactly what happened in the story, but the whole point was the father saying, you'll never amount to anything was like this curse that was spoken, this prophecy that would was bound to become true. Mm -hmm. And so when Bill spoke this prophecy over me, that your daughter is going to turn away from God and she's going to be ruined and she's going to turn into this bitter rebellious creature. I was terrified because I thought if Bill spoke it, it will happen. So we go home terrified that this was going to come true one day. And yet we didn't feel we had a choice because I couldn't sell myself in order mm -hmm. to save my family. Um, I didn't come to realize until years later that Bill's behavior toward me for those six years was sexual grooming. Yeah. Because in the middle of all of his persuasive comments to try to get me to come up to headquarters, he would be rubbing my shoulders and playing with my hair and telling me how beautiful I was. And he would play footsie with me and he would give me his handkerchief and say, keep this to remember me by. Mm -hmm. And um, using a lot of flattery and language and he would hold my hands and he would massage my hands and I would try to pull away and he would grasp them tighter. And um, he would whisper into my ear this flattery and it made me very uncomfortable at the time, but I had no idea that what he was doing was considered sexual harassment right. and that he was grooming me and trying to prime me for more intense uh, behavior. 
Um, and I believe that was his entire focus to get me at headquarters alone. Um, because if you look at some of the other allegations that have been made against him, they, they do get stronger. Um, there have been so many women that have come forward that have explained that it started as sexual harassment. It started as grooming and then it proceeded into molestation and assault. And there have been some individuals who have um, made allegations that they were raped by Bill. And obviously I, I don't know what would happen for sure, but I do firmly believe that the abuse would have escalated mm -hmm. if I had been left at headquarters by myself. And Bill had this routine where he would take young girls into his office late at night and he would sexually assault them in his office. And I describe in the documentary one night where my mom wasn't at headquarters. She was um, over at the staff housing and she had told me like, give me a call when you're ready for me to come pick you up. And it was late at night and the building was empty. Um, all the staff had gone home and Bill was being very physical with me and um, asked me to come into his office. And I describe how I remember so clearly walking through these dark hallways and as he was leading me and uh, by holding my hand and, and I just had this panic arise in me. And of course I didn't even know like what was really going on. I didn't know his intention. I didn't know what he had done to girls in that office, but my instinct knew something was very wrong yeah. in that moment. And I believed that I was about to be assaulted in that moment as he led me into that office. And I still believe in God. And I think by God's grace, we walked into that office and there was a, uh, there was a male staff um, that was sitting in the office doing some computer work who was not supposed to be there that late at night. And Bill was not expecting him. Um, and I could see it on Bill's expression. Um, I don't know what would have happened if that, individual who hadn't been there in that office, but I do know what has happened to other girls in that office. And, um, so when we left, uh, Chicago to come back home, of course the abuse got worse because mm -hmm. Bill had made these promises to my father that somehow I was going to get whipped in shape and nothing had changed. So my dad's abuse escalated. Um, he became, very violent and would go into rages and would I remember him waking me up one morning, like five o'clock in the morning and ripping off my covers off my bed and screaming at me. You will respect me. I do not care about you. Oh. You will respect me. And that just so many instances like that. And eventually oh tensions ran so high. He left unexpectedly one day and never returned. Wow. I'm so sorry that you went through all of that. It's just, it's too much. And I can't even imagine what you must have been going through mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically with the, the medical issues that you were dealing with. That's just, wow. And I'm really happy that your mother was able to kind of see through Bill in that moment and not leave you at that center. I think a lot of people are probably wondering what happened to Bill and if you're comfortable sharing 
what had happened with the lawsuit and kind of where he is now? Well, I was at headquarters in 2011. And six months later in 2012, I came across a a website called recoveringgrace.org. And it was formed by several ex-ATI students who had been raised in the program. They were now adults. And they had begun sharing their stories and what they believed to be the error in the teaching. And um, they're sharing a lot of horror stories of the evil that went on behind closed doors within this organization, within their home and within IBLP property. They had property all around the world of these um, places that were called training centers. And that's where um, kids would be sent to training centers to do work and do manual labor and do ministry work. And there was a lot of evil that happened at the training centers. And so these, these survivors were beginning to speak out. And the day I happened across that website, um, the latest story was on their front page and it was titled sexual harassment at headquarters. And at first I remember being shocked and thought, Oh no, like maybe a staff got assaulted by some stranger in the park. Like that's really what I thought it was at, at first. And I read the account and it was from a woman who was up there in 1992, which is the year I was born. And she was Gothard's handpicked girl at the moment. And she began to explain how he had done the same pattern of grooming and sexual harassment toward her. And I just got chills when I read it because I was able to connect the similarities in the story. And it was like, I was reading my own story. Mm. And at the end of the article, she brings up the legal definition of sexual harassment. And she's like, this is what that was. And I couldn't accept it at that moment. I could not fathom that Bill had done anything like that because we were told Bill was the modern day apostle Paul. Wow. He was revered. He was, he was the, our equivalent of the Pope. And we believed that he could know, he could pretty much do no wrong. Like, sure, we were taught all individuals are born sinners and that Bill's technically born a sinner, but he would actually never really do anything wrong. And um, I had no idea what this website was. I had no idea how many viewers they had each month. I thought it was like a nobody website. (laughs) So in my naivety, I hop into the comment section and I say, so I was at headquarters six months ago and, and this is what happened to me. I had no idea the audience that would read that one day. I received a lot of support in the comment section by other readers and they were validating what I was going through. And, um, a few days later I got a phone call from Bill and, um, he berated me over the phone for an hour as he explained that my comment was destroying the ministry and that if I didn't immediately recant everything I had written, then the ministry would go belly up within a couple of weeks and all the staff members would lose their jobs. It would all be my fault. What? Yeah. You were just telling your story. And if there was truly nothing to hide, he should have been able to stand by that and say, no, nothing is wrong. Right. But for him to tell you to take it down or everything will be destroyed just further validates that what he did was wrong. Did you feel that way? I do. He wanted to silence victims. 
He wanted, he thought that was the only way he could retain his power and control was by silencing individuals. And I am not the only one he reached out to. He reached out to many victims and tried to get them to stay quiet and to recant their stories. And in the middle of that phone call, I got to the point that I was literally on the ground on my knees with the phone on speakerphone sobbing. Mm. And I begged him for mercy and for forgiveness. And I said, I never meant to do this. I love the ministry. I never wanted to hurt it. And he was telling me that, you know, God had chosen him to do this, build this great ministry since the early sixties. And I was destroying all of that. And I told him I would remove my comments immediately and I never meant to do any of this. And he, um, after berating me for an hour, the moment I said I would recant, he suddenly did this 180 and started sweet talking me. And he was like, Oh dear, precious Emily, I love you so much. I would, I don't want you to cry. It just breaks my heart that you're crying right now and it'll be okay. Just remove your comments and it'll all be okay. I still love you. The psychological manipulation was off the charts, but I didn't know it at the time. I had no idea the sick game that he was playing. And I wrote into Recovering Grace. The way their website was designed was you couldn't delete your own comments. A moderator had to do it. So I wrote into them and I said, please delete these comments immediately. It was a mistake. They had the wisdom to reach out to me and suggest a phone call. Mm -hmm. And this began this month long cycle of talks back and forth between Recovering Grace and Bill, where Bill would be calling me sometimes multiple times a day, threatening me, threatening me, doing everything he could to get me to remove my comments and Recovering Grace asking me to stand strong and not let him manipulate me. Yeah. And eventually after a month of this, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I wrote into Recovering Grace one last time and I said, I understand that I did nothing wrong. I told the truth in that comment section and those comments shouldn't be deleted, but I can't handle the harassment from Mm. Bill anymore. Please just remove them. And I never want to hear about any of this again. And they respected my wishes. Oddly enough, about a year later, I got this phone call from Bill just out of the blue as if nothing had happened. And he's like, oh, Emily, I have this new ministry or this this new ministry opportunity that I'm starting where I'm starting a medical clinic and I want to staff it with people that have medical knowledge and you have Crohn's disease. So would you become staff on this? What? What What was going through your mind when he called you? Um, I remember being very bewildered and thinking... Did I imagine last year? Like, has am I crazy? I talk about gaslighting. Yeah. I really thought I was crazy in that moment. Uh, for him to pretend that everything was okay and that he was offering me basically a job. And I got off that phone call very quickly. Um <laughs> pretty shell-shocked from all of it. Um But at that point, the spell, I would say, had been broken. I still didn't have full understanding of what had really happened. Mm-hmm. But my undying loyalty and admiration toward Bill had disappeared because I had seen the dark side of him and I knew I needed to be wary of it. Um, so a few years later in um, October of 2015, I hopped on their Covering Grace website again and I saw an announcement that a lawsuit had been formed with five victims 
Uh, and they were suing IBLP for negligence because um, the lawsuit allegations include multiple um, times where IBLP board was approached and told by victims that Bill is doing things that is making me uncomfortable. And then the board never did anything about it. Wow. So um, it started out as suing the board. Um, I contacted the attorney that had started it and told him my story. And he asked if I wanted to join, which I later did under uh, Jane Doe number three. I was afraid of retaliation from my father at the time. So I wanted to keep my identity secret. Um, and, uh, eventually a total of 19 plaintiffs joined the lawsuit, um, 17 women and two men. We eventually added Bill onto the suit as well. Um, and we fought in that lawsuit for five years until 2020 is when it finally concluded. Um, around 2018, the decision was made between the plaintiffs and the attorneys to voluntarily withdraw the suit. And that is honestly a pretty common thing that happens when you get into the nitty gritty of the suit and you realize that there may be statute of limitation problems and you realize, um, whose, whose claims are actually going to make it all the way into court and what's the likelihood, um, the decision was made, it would be in the best interest to go ahead and withdraw. Um, but at the time we did that, the plaintiffs made a public statement saying that though we are withdrawing, we're not withdrawing our allegations. Yeah. You know, just because our U.S. justice system is broken and not all victims can get justice yeah. and, and, and seek justice to the fullest extent, just because that is a sad reality, that doesn't mean that our allegations are not true yeah. or that we're recanting them in any way, shape or form. About a month after that, Bill turned everything around and filed sanctions against seven of the women. And sanctions are monetary punishment um, for if you've done something that is believed to be harmful. In this case, he was claiming that he had suffered emotional damage from the process of the lawsuit and that our lawsuit should have never been formed. It wasn't valid to begin with um, and was asking for each of the women to pay approximately 18000 apiece. Oh my gosh. Um, and so we had to fight that for an additional two years and eventually ended up in court um, in Chicago with the women testifying against him. Um, and during that evidentiary hearing, at the very end, the judge um, made his decision and one by one went through each plaintiff and explained that he found their testimony to be credible and that he did not believe that we had done anything wrong, that um, our claims you know, weren't invalid, um, that the reason we withdrew was just the nature of the U.S. justice system and sometimes it doesn't always work out. Um, and we were vindicated. We were validated that day, yeah. which was a victory. It wasn't the victory we were originally seeking, but it, it was a victory in that moment to be heard. And, and for a judge to say that he found our testimony to be credible, that was a huge moment. And to be told that I understand you weren't able to finish the lawsuit in the way you wanted to, but you don't have to pay Bill Gothard a single penny because you didn't do anything wrong in filing this suit. Wow. That is a victory. And I will say there's victory in being validated, of course. I wish he were behind bars, which I think everybody wishes that. But 
I am happy that you did get that sort of validation, that the victims got that validation. He was removed from the IBLP, right? He was. He was removed from the board. Um, so he no longer is the president of IBLP. He does still have some assets, I believe, um, that used to belong to the organization. And he just lives by himself in the home that he was born and raised in. It's his old parents' home. And somewhere in Chicago and um, kind of lives quiet, secluded life there. Uh, he's revamped his ministry, as he says, and he's written several pamphlets, books that he sells online. And he says that he's reforming the ministry and God's doing amazing work. Um, but the reality is he's lost his power. Yeah. And he's never going to get it back. Good. He doesn't deserve it. And anything that comes from a pedophile, narcissist type of person, it's like, I don't personally believe that came from God. So I hope that it just fizzles off and dies because that is horrible propaganda that is indoctrinating these children into being in abusive situations and complying. And that's not okay. And I hope that it is erased from the planet. So enough about Bill. Let's not give him any more airtime. I want to talk about you and your exodus out of this group and how you're doing now. When I joined the suit in 2015, um, I did not believe ETI was a cult at the time. That that came later. Uh I was 23 years old, 24, 23 or 24. can't quite remember because um, I signed it on my birthday. Um, mm -hmm. I did not have a car. didn't have a license, didn't have a job, was being the stay-at-home daughter. I had made a vow not to court until I was at least 24. Mm. So I didn't even have any romantic prospects at the time because I was told I was supposed to be serving God until I was 24 as a single woman. Um, but I joined the suit. It was a very, I don't know how I did it at the moment, looking back. It was, it feels like a reckless decision. I know ultimately it saved my life, but I don't know how I gained the courage to do it in the moment. But I did. And I decided at that moment, if I'm going to do this, I should probably get some therapy for the first time. Yeah. So I made an appointment and I walked into a therapist's office for the very first time in my life on December 15th, 2015. And that is the day that I call my freedom day. Mm. I didn't escape the cult in the middle of the night with the clothes on my back and never look back. I didn't do that. My deconstruction was a years long process and it was hard and it was painful and messy and it involved a wicked strong bout of PTSD. <laughs> but that first day walking into the counselor's office, I believe was the turning point for me. And Freedom Day is a day I celebrate now every year mm -hmm. as it comes around. And um, as I said, I did develop very severe PTSD for a while. Um, I slowly started to gain my independence and move out and get a job and get a car and started to live my life as, as a normal young adult should. Um, a lot of milestones were hit. Getting my first pair of jeans at the age of 24 was terrifying. Oh my gosh. Getting on a dating app for the first time scared me to death because I, you know, was convinced I was going to marry, so, or I was going to 
like get on a date with some rapist or something. Like I was told that that would happen if I, if I stepped out of the umbrella, if I stepped out of line of IBLP, that I would be murdered or raped or something. And it would be a direct punishment from God. Um, But step by step, a little bit of time, I made it toward freedom. Um, Eventually started sharing my story online and I formed um, an organization called Thriving Forward. And that is what I do today as my full-time work. Um, I'm studying to get a certification as a domestic violence coach so I can work with clients one-on-one who are in dangerous situations and are trying to get out safely. The past few years, I've done a lot of advocacy work online, um, do a lot of writing, provide a platform for survivors to be able to tell their story and um, put resources out there that help survivors um, who are in the process of their own deconstruction journey and trying to become free. Um, And uh, it's very fulfilling work. It's very hard at times because I'm constantly having to fight against my own past right. and my own insecurities and the belief system that still has some roots deep down inside of me. I always work with a counselor and therapist and um, working to, to pursue healing myself all the time because healing is a lifelong journey. I think, especially when you're born into a system like I was mm-hmm. that shapes your formative years, it takes a lifetime to slowly pull out all those roots and truly be able to walk in freedom. Wow, it's so inspiring what you're doing. And I mentioned off camera, I just commend you for stepping out and extending a hand to people who've gone through similar situations because I can attest that it's not easy when you are holding space for people who have traumas similar to yours. It it can bring up some of your own stuff, as you mentioned, but it's so important to platform these stories and expose these dark corners of these culty groups and spread the awareness. So thank you so much for doing that. And guys, if you're listening, go follow her right now on Facebook, Thriving Forward, on Instagram, thriving.forward, and just do whatever you can to support what she's doing because it's incredible. It takes a lot of work, mental, spiritual, emotional, physical, all the things. So I'm so happy that you're doing that. Thank you. Thank you. So talk about how you feel now and what brings you peace and what's the consciousness side of your story, that individual sovereignty and kind of what helps you keep going. I did manage to cling on to my faith throughout the entire process. And I would say my faith is actually what got me through. Um, I do consider myself a Christian, though um, I have put away anything to do with patriarchy. And a huge part of my deconstruction was being able to deconstruct all the toxic teaching and be able to look at God in an entirely new light, be able to throw off the old lens and to reconstruct and rebuild. Mm -hmm. And um, I am a follower of Jesus. And I do still read scripture, but I look at scripture through what I believe Jesus exampled to us in his life. Which, when I look at what Jesus actually 
did, especially in his time on earth. He respected women and elevated women, and he broke social norms again and again and again. And so while I know a lot of individuals read scripture and see patriarchy all intertwined throughout the entire Bible, I see the patriarchy, but I don't live by it because I don't believe that is what God intended Mm. when he created us. I believe that we were created by God and I believe that he created man and woman fully equal. And I think the umbrella system and that authority structure is completely man-made. You can cherry pick verses out of scripture to try to support it, but I do not believe that is actually scriptural in any way, shape or form. Um, Just because something's laid out in scripture, such as um, polygamy, I don't think that means that um, it was, that was something that was socially common at that time period. I don't believe that that was designed or that was intended by God for us to actually follow that. So that's how I've been able to maintain my faith and maintain even being able to read scripture is I I don't take everything in that book as a prescription. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's nice that you're able to see things through a different perspective, too, and understand the times that it was coming from and try and see it from a different way, a more loving way, a compassionate way. And I have no problem with people who follow Jesus and read the Bible and they're doing so in a way that doesn't hurt other people. It doesn't hurt themselves. Mm -hmm. It doesn't hurt their children. If that lifts you up, if that inspires you, if that makes you feel more comfortable and confident in who you are and gives you purpose, I'm all for it. So I'm really happy that you're able to share that with us today. Yeah. It really does matter how we are applying our faith to how we live. Yeah. Because I grew up where we apply our faith in order to control and manipulate and abuse. Mm -hmm. Instead, I apply my faith as how do we seek justice for victims? How do we support them? How do we bring equality to men and women? Um, how do we, how, how do we treat people with kindness and dignity and respect? That is, that is where my faith lies and that is what shapes my viewpoint today and that's why i do my work with thriving forward that's how my faith can intermix in all of that yeah it gives me the motivation to do that rather than what i grew up with where faith was used to actually abuse yeah that's beautiful and thank you again for the work that you're doing um the website is thrivingforward.org and we mentioned the social media links but we'll also put them in the description below so you can easily find any resources that we've mentioned today and before we go i need to get your linda listen moment your sassy statement as the viral video with the toddler goes to an organization or someone who has upset you or you can go an inspirational route or do both i mean whatever you want to do Linda, listen, you're not going to go to hell for wearing jeans. (laughs) (laughs) You are not. Wear the jeans, girl. Wear the jeans. (laughs) So good. That was amazing. I love that, Linda, listen. I think everyone else is going to love it, too. And guys, if you love this episode and you want to support Emily and what she's doing, drop those comments below those words of encouragement it not only helps support our guests here today but again it boosts the algorithm and shoots it out to more people so that we can continue to elevate these stories and these voices and before we go do you have anything else that you want to add emily i 
do want to mention that in addition to my public page, um, if you go to my website, you'll see um, a tab for support groups. And I do offer um, private support groups uh, via Facebook mm. for the moment um, as some more individualized support for survivors who want a space that is more private. It's still online. So sometimes you still got to be careful, but a more private space um, where they can ask some of the really hard questions. Because I know sometimes survivors don't feel comfortable with um, sharing certain details on my public page, or there's really even not a great place to be able to ask questions and get a lot of group feedback. So my private groups are a way for you to shape uh, more safely share more details of your story um, and to get some feedback from other survivors. I am in those groups constantly and also providing additional support and feedback and pointing survivors to, to various resources to help them wherever they are on, they are on their journey. Um, but if you're someone who is looking for a safe community to be able to deconstruct with others, or you want a community where you can share parts of your story and you're going to be heard and understood and validated. Mm. That is what my private groups are designed for. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. Thank you so much for giving us that information. And I'll have you send me those links as well. And I'll add that to my Instagram highlights. I just created a tab that is resources for all different cults and support groups and everything that you need. Well, at least some resources that you can use to help you in your journey. And if you are interested in supporting the podcast over on Patreon a little bit further, that would be amazing. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash cults to consciousness. Catherine, you are my newest patron. Thank you so much for your dedication and your support. And if you guys aren't a patron, that's okay too. Just liking and sharing the video and subscribing makes a huge difference. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious, and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility. You can also find me on social media at cults to consciousness or reach out by email at cults to consciousness at gmail.com.